As Caden mentioned, we're beginning a three-part series surrounding the events of the death and resurrection of Christ, which seems appropriate given next week we observe Palm Sunday and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday the following week. Today, we're going to focus on how Christ's death and resurrection should have been no surprise to anyone back then and certainly not to us now. In fact, it was, by all accounts, the most predicted event in all of history. History's most predicted event. Just think about that for a moment. Why do people try to predict things? So think about things that maybe we make predictions about. Sports events, the outcome of sports events. If you have a March Madness bracket, you are looking at that closely and see if you predicted correctly. Did you know there has never, ever been a recorded perfect March Madness bracket in the history of the series? The odds are not just one in a million. They're not even one in a billion. They're actually the odds of getting a perfect March Madness bracket is one in 9.2 quintillion, which quintillion has 18 zeros. That's how hard it would be to perfectly predict the March Madness bracket. There's other things we try to predict. World events. There was a famous philosopher, one of the most famous predictors in history, named Nostradamus, and he predicted a lot of things. He predicted there would be a fire in London. He predicted the death of a French king, a war in Western Europe. But the odds were very much in his favor. A fire in the world's largest city, the death of a human king, especially during a time when kings were dying all the time, a war in Europe. These are things that are as inevitable as me saying, I predict a large crowd of people is going to cross Roscoe Boulevard around 1230 today. It's just kind of easy when you know that history tends to have these things that repeat itself. So a lot of people have tried, but very few have gotten close to predicting major world events in a really meaningful way. Then there's death. People try to predict death. We've been talking a lot about death on Wednesday nights in Ecclesiastes. People try to determine when they might die, either themselves or maybe if someone else might die, and they're typically inaccurate. Uh, perhaps you'd like to know when you're going to die. It might make you help you make some plans. But even doctors predicting the death of patients who are sick, so it's obvious that they're headed that direction pretty quickly, they're only correct about 23% of the time. So either the person goes quicker or takes a lot longer. How many times have you heard someone say, well, they gave me three weeks to live three years ago? Not super accurate. So why are predictions interesting if we know that they're not typically that accurate? Well, because they create this anticipation. There's something that's going to happen. They set an expectation, and then we wait expectantly to see if they come 
true. So in our three-part series, we're looking at the anticipation of what's going to happen on, on Resurrection Sunday. And there was a lot of anticipation, not just the weeks leading up, but centuries leading up to that. And so we look at, at Luke 24, and we're actually starting at the end, because Luke 24 happens after the resurrection. We're going to pick up in verse 13, where Jesus is actually already resurrected, and we find two of his followers walking on a road. In that very day, verse 13 of Luke 24, in that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with one another about all these things that had happened. What had happened? Well, Jesus had been crucified. While they were talking and discussing with, together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only, the only visitor to Jerusalem who's not know these things have happened there these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they, did, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels and, that, and who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They missed it. They are standing in front of a risen Jesus after prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy has told them it would happen after Jesus, through three years of ministry, told them regularly that he would die and be resurrected, and they missed it. From what we know, he wasn't in disguise, although for some reason they didn't recognize him. They just couldn't fathom it was him. They'd been told over and over again, he's going to rise from the dead, and they couldn't fathom that that would happen. They were just sad. Why were they sad? They couldn't fathom that he would rise from the dead. And yet they shouldn't have been surprised. Why? How do we know they shouldn't have been surprised? Because Jesus says, and these are people he loves, he's not talking to the Pharisees, but he still says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Jesus has saying, you should have expected this. I told you about this. It had been predicted for hundreds, if not thousands of years. 
And they were predictions that anyone in Israel would know, especially a follower of Jesus. These predictions are known as prophecies. What prophecies were designed to do was set expectations for what was to come. And so a prophecy that is written in the Old Testament was meant to set Israel's expectations for a savior. And he, Jesus, is talking about those prophecies, right? Moses and the prophets who would have written in the Old Testament. And so prophecy sets expectations. It isn't the only time Jesus refers to prophecy. It's usually signaled when Jesus says something like, it is written. So in Luke 4, 17, he says, he's a small child, actually, and he unrolled a scroll in the temple and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He actually opened up a scroll from a prophet, and he read, the spirit of the Lord was upon me, because he was taking the prophecy and saying, look, This prophecy is actually coming true in me. In Matthew 11, he says again, This is he of whom it is written. I am he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Talking about John the Baptist. Paul also refers to prophecy in his letters. In Romans 14, he says, It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. In fact, Paul references a, a similar scene to the one we just written or read in his letter to the Corinthians. Let me just read uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3. If you're taking notes, you can just jot that down. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and then this next part is really important, in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and again he repeats. Remember, when we're studying scripture, it's always good to see the repeat. In accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Paul says twice, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. When we study the Bible, we can't ignore phrases, even phrases like, it is written, or in according, in according to the Scripture. It's there for a reason. It's there to take our minds away from what we're reading in the moment and say, wait, is this the fulfillment of prophecy. And it happens over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, 50 times the New Testament writers, either in the Gospels or the Epistles, say it is written or in accordance with the Scriptures or some form of that phrase. In accordance with the Scriptures, it was, by all accounts, history's most predicted event. It was all documented in the Old Testament. Everything that happened in Jesus' life was already known. It's important that we can't miss this connection. As we look toward what we're going to celebrate in two weeks, don't miss the connection that this didn't just happen. This was a planned event. So how did they miss it? 
How did these people on this road, how did they miss it? Let's not be foolish like they are or were. Let's not be slow of heart like they were. Let's understand what these followers of Jesus didn't get. And so for the balance of our time, I want to take us to just one of the hundreds of prophecies found in the Old Testament. Please turn to Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53 is about in the center of your Bible, after Psalms, but before you get to the other prophets like Jeremiah. And it is the writing of a man who was a prophet in Jerusalem, man Isaiah. He lived and ministered about 700 years before Jesus was born. And he was raised up by God to deliver messages from God to the people of Israel. He wrote down those messages or prophecies in this book. And this would be common language to you. In fact, as we read this passage, you may remember things that are said here. And in fact, a lot of it is quoted in other parts of Scripture. The passage we look at today we find a detailed description of what the Bible scholars have often called the suffering servant. And we know him as Jesus, but Isaiah didn't know him by name. He wasn't given that message from God, but he described him as a suffering servant. It's actually a pretty good description of Jesus if you know the life of Jesus, right? Since you were in Sunday school, you remember that when we got to this time of year, we would hear about the suffering of Jesus every year. He came as a servant of all, and he suffered greatly at the hands of those he actually came to serve. So what a great depiction of a suffering servant. So let's read through this description of Jesus as the suffering servant. And as we read, think about what you already know about Jesus's life and death from the Gospels, which we know a lot about, and consider what is said here and think about that this was written 700 years before all of that happened. So I actually want us to start just a little ahead of Isaiah chapter 53 in the, at the end of chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so he sprinkled many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All like Sheep, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off for the land, of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And why? And, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had not done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was still the will of the Lord to crush him and to, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring." He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and his was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's your reaction to this passage? Did you tune out a little bit? It's fine. Sometimes I had to reread it. It's in kind of a language that's poetic, so you have to kind of follow it. We're going to look through it. Do you happen to see the variety of things that happened to this suffering servant? Do they ring a bell? Do they sound familiar? It's because they are familiar. This passage tells us exactly what would happen when God came. It's kind of unbelievable because you wouldn't expect that a son of God would be treated the way the suffering servant was treated, which is why the Israelites didn't believe that this was the Messiah, How could a Messiah, someone sent to rescue Israel, be treated like this and ultimately be put to death, as it says? And they missed it. So not only does prophecy set expectations, but we see that prophecy confirms what is true. Prophecy confirms what is true. Let's take a look at how this passage in particular confirms what is true. And I'll tell you that we're going to barely scratch the surface. There have been whole books written just on this chapter, huge commentaries, all highlighting the predictions it makes about Jesus. It is a true, you have opened on your lap a gold mine, a gold mine of predictions, better than any prediction that has ever been made in the history of mankind. And you think I'm using hyperbole or conjecture, this is, by all accounts, unbelievable that these many things would be true about one human written 700 years before he was to come. It is a treasure trove. And we talked about the number of references there are. 
we are going to do, so if you're a note taker, good, great, jot down verses, we're just going to go through, I'm going to walk through a few of these verses and show you how scripture confirms that what Isaiah 53 tells us is actually what happened in the life of Christ. So let's just start again where we started in verse 13. And we're and I'm going to have the verses on the on the board that that um, that refer back to them, so that you don't have to keep flipping in your Bible. You're more than welcome to, um, but I, I want to make sure that we can get through these quickly. So, Isaiah fifty two thirteen, act wisely. The servant shall act wisely. Mark six two says, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands?" It's not that he was just acting wisely; he was was kind of shockingly wise. They didn't understand where he could have, without any training, gotten the wisdom he got. So he acted wisely and wiser than anyone would. It was noteworthy. He wasn't just a wise person. He was the wisest. Similarly, same verse in in Isaiah 52.13, a little little, uh, later says lifted up. So he was lifted up. John 12, 34 and 35 says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you. He's saying, I know what Isaiah 52 says. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest it overtake you. His answer to how do, how do we, I thought that we were supposed to follow someone who's lifted up is, I am going to be. Just watch. And indeed, he was. He was ultimately lifted up. Isaiah 52, 14, moving on down our passage, uh, says that he had a marred appearance. Well, you guys have all heard the story of his terrible crucifixion. Just one thing they did to him that would mar his appearance is in Matthew 27, 29, they, lift, they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. This wasn't just decoration. This was torture. It put, his, it put so many things inside his head and face that you would not have been able to recognize him. He was marred beyond appearance. Fulfilled that prophecy in a really painful way. Isaiah 52, 15. Sprinkle many nations. Well, we know that his last words to disciples in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he employed people who then, and now we are one of those nations. If he didn't sprinkle many nations, we wouldn't be here right now. The many nations came to know him and that in a fulfillment of prophecy. And so they see and understand, Acts 26, 17 through 18, as Jesus is talking to Saul when he, was, he appeared before Saul and said, you got to stop killing Christians, Jesus says to Saul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that's exactly what Paul, the converted Saul, did, is that he helped 
people who had no idea even what the prophecy said to understand not only what prophecy said, but that it was fulfilled in Christ. They came to see and understand. That's why Christianity spread through the region, because people's eyes were open. Fulfillment of prophecy. Moving into f- chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed? John 12, 37 through 38 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is actually directly quoting this passage in Isaiah and saying that the fulfillment of the passage was the fact that people didn't quickly come to belief. That's the expectation. That's the fulfillment. Verse 2, he grew up like a shoot. Luke 14, 17 says, And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up was his custom. It's not saying he grew fast. It's saying that he grew up, which would have been, it would have been weird. Why didn't God just send an adult to come and rescue Israel from their sin? Why did he have to be born and grow? Why did he have to be a baby? The mere fact that he was a baby who grew, as was the custom in that, in that society, shows the fulfillment of prophecy, the very fact that he grew. It would be weird to think that God would need to grow up in order to come save people from their sins. Verse 4, bore our griefs. Matthew 8, 16 through 17. That evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirit with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now we're really making the connections, right? Matthew is actually helping us see, oh, Isaiah was actually fulfilled exactly in this. Later in that verse, in 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 verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it says he carried our sorrows. 1 Peter 2.24 talks about this. For this to you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He suffered the same sorrows. He understood. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, talks about that, that that Jesus can actually have empathy for us because he carried our sorrows. Dropping down to verse 6 of Isaiah 53. Um, it's not showing up on my, my notes. It's not there either. I'm not sure what I was trying to tell you guys, but I will, I will let you know the iniquity of us all <laughs> is, is certainly something that he addressed as he was dying on the cross. And, um, and, and there is a quote there that I'm sure I meant to get for you. Verse 7, he opened not his mouth. John 19.10 says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have all authority to release you and an authority to crucify you? Pilate was dumbfounded that he wouldn't, that Jesus wouldn't defend himself. That's weird too. Why would the God of the universe not be able to defend himself or choose not to defend himself in front of a man, a man he could strike dead? But yet, Isaiah says he's not going to open his mouth, and he didn't, and he could have. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. In verse 8, he was cut off out of the land for his generation. John 19.6 says, When the chief priests and the officers saw them, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. If that's not a cutting off, 
from your generation. I don't know what is. Every leader of your day says, I want this guy dead. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. And it shouldn't have happened. Why would they pick on a guy like him? Because it was to fill, fulfill prophecy. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53, that he would have a grave with the wicked. Luke 2, 32, 32, 32 says, two others who were criminals, I think it's supposed to be 23, 32, sorry about that. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. It's weird that someone who was innocent was killed with criminals as a criminal. But that's because it needed to fulfill the prophecy that he would go to the grave with the wicked. Later in verse 9, with a rich man in his death. John 19, 23, you guys know this, that Joseph of Arimathea came and took away his body. He was a rich man who put him in a tomb. These two things don't make sense, that he made a grave with the wicked but was still buried in a rich man's tomb. That should never have happened in the custom. A criminal was not given a good grave. Why did it happen? To fulfill prophecy. Later in verse 9, there was no violence, no deceit. John 19, 4, Pilate said to them, See, I am bringing, you out, bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He was innocent. Pilate declared him innocent. There was no violence, no deceit, no reason to terminate his life. But he was terminated anyway. Why? To fulfill prophecy. Verse 10, the will of the Lord was to crush him. Luke twenty two forty two 42 says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God wanted to kill his son. That doesn't make sense. But it was written by Isaiah, and it was fulfilled in the life and death of Christ. Later in verse 10, this also doesn't make sense. So God crushed him, killed him. But then it says, he shall prolong his days. What are you talking about? How can you prolong your days after you've been crushed? Well, John 20, 8 through 9 says, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The only way to prolong your your days after you're dead is to rise from the dead. uh, If we go to verse 11, make many to be accounted righteous. Romans 15, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He did do that, made many righteous. Later in that verse, verse 11, he says, uh, Isaiah writes, he shall bear their iniquities. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29 Uh, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will bear your burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Final verse. I told you we're going to do a quick deep dive of this chapter. Verse 12. I think that Verse 12, we see anything different on verse 12, slide 12? I don't think so. So we're gonna, I think we're going to stop there because I think the slides duplicated themselves. Does anyone wonder if 
there's a connection between the suffering servant and Jesus right now? Is anyone not sure? And that's why Jesus said to his followers, you're foolish. You had access to this. You knew what I had said and what the the prophets had, had preached. And perhaps after looking over these verses, you can understand why Mark 15.39 says, and when the centurion, do you remember this scene? After Jesus took his last breath, stood facing him, saw that in the way when he breathed his last, and he said, the centurion, who didn't know scripture, but watched all this happen, and knew enough to say, truly this man was the son of God. This prophecy is true. It's confirmed over and over by the events of the Gospels. And I know we did a heavy Bible study to to look at that. Do you know there are 439 other prophecies in the Old Testament that all point to the right, to to Jesus as the Messiah? Remember that we talked about the crazy odds of the March Madness bracket, one in 9.2 quintillion, 18 zeros? Well, someone studied the mathematical probability that one man, one man could fulfill all the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. Not 18 zeros, 147 zeros. Those are the odds of getting that right. There is only one person in the universe that can beat those odds, and he has to be sovereign over everything. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that there is a God who does not care if the odds are too great? Do you believe that those rare odds were intended to help us believe? Do you realize that prophecy is a gift? That the fact that you have more than half of your Bible, these pages, are all here to show you that the same thing that the centurion realized, truly this man was the son of God. Does that mean anything to you? To know that God told us what to expect hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, does it mean anything to you that these writings actually prove themselves over and over? It meant something to one man. And this is the last place we'll turn. If you could turn to Acts 8, verse 32. Because this passage we studied shows up again. In Acts 8.32, an Ethiopian who encountered the Apostle Philip in the book of Acts, he had read these very words in Isaiah 53, and we have a record of it. Isaiah 53 shows up in verse 32 of Acts 8. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before his shearer is silent, So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? 
Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53 certainly resonated with this man. In fact, it seems that he became convicted of the truth of the gospel and later was immediately baptized, proclaiming he was a Jesus follower. It convicted him that Jesus was the one sent from God. Does it convict you? Because that's how this is meant to work. It's not just that prophecy sets expectations and confirms what is true. Prophecy leads to true belief. There's another prophecy that Isaiah wrote about. It's in uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah. I'll read it to you because you already know it. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For to us a child is born. You hear this a lot at Christmas. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. To this day, only a portion of that has come true. A child was born. A son was given. But the rest of the promise hasn't happened yet. We still have active prophecy in our midst. There is stuff that has not happened that we can expect. The Son of God will rule over the nations of the world, according to the book of Revelation. The government will be on his shoulders once he comes again. There will be an ending peace. There will be a kingdom that is perfectly and just and righteous. The promises are to a believer, and there is prophecy about the future in your Bible. So there's both prophecy that has come true and the fulfillment that we expected Jesus, and Jesus came and fulfilled that. There's also prophecy that we can expect to come true. That's why prophecy leads to true belief. So if we've established that these expectations are legit, these predictions did come true, then the one behind them is legit. And so why do you ignore him? Unbeliever, what are you looking for? It's not on your phone. It is not in the conversations that you're going to have, maybe are having, as I preach this message. Are you looking for something more real than a one in 147 zeros chance that this is real? Something that defies the odds? Are you looking for something more consistent? Are you looking for something more interesting? If so, then you're missing it. You're missing it just like his followers on the road to Emmaus. This book, these truths, they're so much more interesting than anything else you could read. And just because they're not in a 180 text uh, character soundbite or just because they're not on, on a TikTok that you can flip doesn't make them irrelevant to you. If you continue to ignore him, you can expect 
expect that you will one day meet him. Will you be ready? The, the believers on the road to Emmaus were not ready to meet him. Their eyes were shielded. Part of it was because of their unbelief, just their lack of faith in the predictions, in the prophecy, in the truth. Your eyes could be open today if you would stop saying that this is foolishness or stop saying my parents made me come. This is about you. This is about you. So stop ignoring the person that defied all the odds. Stop. Believer, are you ignoring him? You say that you love him. Do you have that sense of excited anticipation that comes when you know something is true? That expectation? What are you thinking about the next two weeks as you commemorate the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of your Savior? You've been accessing this truth for a long time. Have you embraced the fact that it's true all the time? Do you explore more of those truths? Do you long for that truth? I'll encourage you not to ignore your Savior. He is a wonderful counselor. The Prince of Peace, is that how you approach him? Do you find him in everything you think and do? This isn't just for you and you alone. This is for all of us. There are only two categories in this room. How will we think about the fact that the Bible you hold in your hands is always true, provided the greatest expectation. And as you think about the next two weeks, as we explore this terrible death, as we explore this unbelievable exaltation, when you listen to Ben preach next Sunday, when you listen to Esai preach on Resurrection Sunday, think about all of the things that they're talking about were known before they happened for centuries. That is amazing. Let's thank the Lord for it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you to have scripture that over and over again tests true. It has passed every human test, as many tests as people have put it through. It is reliable, and it is a fact. And it gives us great expectation, not only as we celebrate what's to happen and what's to be commemorated in the next two weeks, but also as we think about heaven. You've promised believers heaven. And because you promised a Messiah and he came, we know that the promises of heaven for those who believe are also true. And we take great joy in knowing that from you. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.